Welcome to Season 2 of EdTech Insiders, where we talk to the most interesting thought leaders, founders, entrepreneurs, educators, and investors driving the future of education technology. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an EdTech veteran with over 10 years of experience at top EdTech companies. Al Kingsley has over 30 years experience in educational technology and digital safeguarding. For the last 25 years, Al has been the group managing director of NetSupport, an international software company developing market-leading software solutions used by over 18 million customers. Designed to support the effective use of instructional technology in classrooms alongside e-safety technologies to safeguard students online. Al writes for a range of international titles on all aspects of education, with a particular focus on digital strategy, the use of edtech, blended learning, safeguarding, and broader strategic planning. He's the author of My Secret EdTech Diary and My School Governance Handbook, as well as the co-host of the EdTech Shared podcast. Al Kingsley, welcome to EdTech Insiders. Hi there. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to speak to you. You have been in EdTech and writing about EdTech for a while. You have decades of experience in EdTech and school governance. I am not going to force you to recount your entire life at EdTech because you've done a lot of different things, but I'd love to hear you talk about how the EdTech field has evolved since you first entered the field. What did EdTech mean on your first day sort of being in it? And what does it mean now? And how has sort of what's transpired in between? Well, it's certainly wise not to try and recount all of it. Otherwise, we would be here a while. I suppose the truth of it is when we think about the advent of technology, and probably things started to pick up a bit, you know, in the late 80s where technology became slightly more affordable and we rolled forward. I think for many years, there was an effort to either take personal computing devices or business computing devices and find a squeeze or a fit within the education landscape. And sometimes it was a case of we've got a tool, so how do we find a purpose? As opposed to, as we've, you know, fortunately, thankfully, reached a point now where we actually look to see where something can actually have a positive impact and purpose. And more importantly, I think increasingly we've seen as time goes on, we're also very mindful of evidence and evidence-formed edtech. I mean, the word edtech itself has kind of evolved in many regards. One thing that I tend to be quite a strong advocate of is there's a natural persuasion when we talk about edtech to immediately think of the classroom, full stop, period, if I'm in my North American mode. And of course, that's absolutely the space where edtech does exist. But what we've also seen over the last few years is that actually we need to look through a wider lens and edtech is all of the technology that underpins our ability to deliver efficient and effective teaching and learning. And when we start thinking about data, we start thinking about the idea of the the blended learning environments, the flipped classroom, thinking about bigger topics like well-being, parental communication, effective use of data, managing timeliness for staff. Suddenly, we start thinking about ed tech in a much more ecosystem-based mindset. And I think what we've seen is we've kind of, hopefully, we're still on the journey, that's for sure, because technology keeps moving at that pace that nobody can claim to have all the answers just yet. But what we have seen is technology joining up. The idea that rather than having pockets of technology that we were using in an isolated way or a silo way working within certain schools or classrooms, 
we're now starting to look at how technology interacts together. And actually, maybe we'll come on to it. One of the measures of good technology is actually about having that interaction and that sharing of data um, so that we're not duplicating, triplicating the, the, the effort that we're using technology for. It's a really interesting point. I haven't been in EdTech as long as you have, but I've seen some of that shift as well, where it goes from taking off-the-shelf software or software that's meant for business purposes and trying to figure out how it could be used for teaching. Now we have so many EdTech startups. We have so many EdTech tools. We have some big companies that feature, that really focus only on education technology, and they have expanded what it means. It's not only classroom use cases, home use cases, Parent communication, obviously the pandemic accelerated this idea that learning can happen anywhere. And I think the whole world has really adjusted to that. One of the topics you think and write a lot about is how edtech can and should serve goals beyond traditional academic learning. It's not just about maths and English and social studies or, you know, it can do a lot more. And and let's talk through some of these other use cases. You just mentioned mental health in the U.S. and I believe throughout a lot of the world, you know, we are having a mental health crisis for young people who are in schools. One out of three teen girls has contemplated suicide, according to a recent CDC report. 60% feel persistently sad and hopeless. We've seen anxiety, depression, you know, everything you might think of. And in the U.K., there's an online safety bill that intends to protect children from harmful content online. So there's sort of a, a realization that students are in a mental health crisis. How do you think a moment like that can matter to our ed tech field? And, and how can we support the student body at this really strange moment in history? I mean, it's a big topic, isn't it? I mean, there's different layers where educational technology plays a role. So wherever we are around the world, whether we're in the UK and Keeping Children Safe in Education Act or SEPA in America or wherever we are, we've got a legislated obligation to keep our learners safe online. And that applies for all of our learners. And that can be whether it's about proactive monitoring, filtering, making sure we control the content our young children have access to, but also it's built into the broader context of digital citizenship, actually teaching and informing our learners in ways to keep themselves safe. Now, when it comes to the broader health, there's a whole raft of different areas that are linked around social, emotional, mental health. So we can think about some of our most vulnerable learners and we can think about how technology provides, much as we're doing today, the opportunity for face-to-face reassuring scheduled routine conversations. And through the pandemic, we saw our most vulnerable learners were able to maintain that routine and that reassurance from trusted sources in school that otherwise would have built anxiety and challenges for them. I think bigger than that, we look at technology as a platform. I'm very much of a mindset that actually one of the most important areas we're trying to develop for our learners is skills-based rather than about our ability to consume and retain knowledge. And so I suppose there's those different strands, isn't there? There's building resilience in our learners, how they stay positive, how they build that perseverance into their practice, developing their problem-solving skills, their open-mindedness, their self-control. All those kind of strands are linked to both having technology that's accessible and equitable for all. And sometimes we think of technology and we think the best product's the one with the most features on the toolbar or the most capabilities. And yet, actually, if we want 
inclusivity and we want to be able to make sure that all of our learners have access to technology we're much more mindful of tools that are simple reliable flexible platform agnostic can be accessed from the smartphone where we can give curated resources that can support learners with whatever challenge or vulnerability they may be encountering and give them the confidence to trust the information that's provided now i would argue technology is a fantastic tool if we assume we've got a level playing field and that's really the key when it comes to digital poverty and digital equity in terms of households and how many devices they have available for their children but where there is parity we suddenly open up the opportunity for lots of different resources that can be curated and to help children reflect and share their feelings their emotions and their mood and provide them with tools and strategies for how to best engage as well as be that connector to those trusted voices so in the uk there was a big phase of 18 months ago we updated our guidance there were challenges about online sexual harassment and bullying peer-to-peer abuse and one of the key things is how do we provide a way for a child to reach out and share their concern with an adult well actually if it's something of a sexual nature perhaps a child with a male teacher may not be comfortable sharing that but providing a pathway to other trained and supported staff where they can share their anxieties and concerns provides an opportunity for visibility so i think we can look around nurture we can look about building those resilience and skills and then we can also look at technology that is appropriate and inclusive for all of our learners and that's a really potted summary because there's so much more we could chat about on that topic Sure. I want to dig in on one aspect of it, which I find really interesting, which is this idea that educational technology and consumer telecommunications right now allows everybody to be connected. And there's sort of a double-edged sword there. It means that you are exposed to people, children or students of any age are exposed to people they may not want to be exposed to, and that can cause bullying or social media harassment or all sorts of things like that. It can also be a positive in giving people access to mental health services, specialists, trusted advisors, coaches, mentors, everything like that. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about, because I think that's a really interesting point, about how ed tech and sort of communication tech, just giving access to other people, sort of play together. Because sometimes we think of ed tech as, you know, giving people content. And I think this is a very different and positive reframing of giving students access to other trusted humans. There are some great resources that are available to provide those. Often it's about peer case studies that young people can access, and often that can be far more powerful than hearing from an adult. I think we use technology in so many different ways. Every Sunday each week, I spend four hours as a childline counsellor, so from home supporting some of the most vulnerable children across the UK, encountering some really challenging situations. Now, ironically, the technology unlocks their willingness and capacity to engage and confidence to share their most challenging thoughts in a way that face-to-face probably wouldn't due to their own self-esteem and confidence and talking to a strange adult. I think within our schools, we recognize that as professionals, as educators, we can curate resources that we know have been suitably shaped and evidenced and can create content that's appropriate to our school board or whoever is monitoring that that core content. And we can curate that to make sure our learners find it easy and, and they're able to access that information. I think the final part on all of these things comes down to We can provide all the resources in the world for our learners, but we have to empower them with the confidence and the skills to actually know how to identify and recognize when there's a challenge 
and to have the confidence to reach out. So I think the digital skills and the critical thinking skills, the personal development skills are something that's really come to the fore. And we wrap some up in digital citizenship, don't we, about thinking about what personal information we share, thinking about we may not know who this person is who's claiming to be a a friend of an equal age on a chat group. But it goes beyond that because I think it goes to the skills to actually not only access and find information, but then to challenge its authenticity. And that's been accelerated. Here in the UK, we've had this lovely word Brexit that's rumbled on for many years. And in the US, you've had some challenging elections along the way. And all of those have sparked a sense of, do we trust the information we read? How do we validate and evidence it? And I think the same applies for young people is actually, we we don't want to scare them, but we also want them to be mindful that information that they find needs to be validated. And if we're thinking about resources that support their mental health, One thing we've really seen is because there's been an increase in challenge and trauma for many of our youngest children, the online platforms, whilst they provide safe spaces if curated well, also have the risk of placing young people in somewhat of an echo chamber and they can express their fears and vulnerabilities. And sadly, there are some echo chambers that will amplify those fears rather than actually provide any kind of alternative resonance to try and dampen that down. So I think like all these things, you you know, it is a double-edged sword, isn't it? And But I think the more that schools can curate and signpost through their own digital platforms, their pl- the place where their students will access each morning on the school website, the more they're able to empower that. And the last part of that, as I'd say, is we shouldn't stop at students. Some of the best practice we see is about actually training and empowering our parents so that they feel confident in providing support and engaging with their children. We can't assume that every parent by the nature of having children, is an expert on all aspects of developmental support that a young person needs. None of us are perfect. So again, I think that is where digital provides a far better opportunity in a world where parents are busy and at the door, school engagement continues to diminish. Incredibly interesting points in there. And I think the idea of creating a curated safe space within the school environments that's protected, but also giving people the skills to be able to navigate the larger online space, which we all occupy on a daily basis. It's a really interesting combination of mental health resources and support that needs to, there's a lot of design that needs to go into a system like that. You say, we want to keep them safe and trust the people they know around them. But at the same time, know that people aren't always trustworthy. Information isn't always correct, and they have to be dubious and skeptical and thoughtful about what they consume. But you also want to keep them safe and not expose them to it. It's a really interesting back and forth. But they're all skills for later life too, aren't they? I mean, our objective is that all of our learners leave the school system with all the skills that they need to navigate the adult world, an ever-changing world. But one thing I would say is that we've seen, particularly in the last two or three years, is the workplace, the adult world has changed. It's become highly digital, much more flexible in terms of working. And I love that because it creates and it removes the place-based barriers for many of our children, that it doesn't matter what city you're in, you can apply for and access careers and opportunities internationally, all from the comfort of your front room in your house. But at the same time, that increased reliance on digital means that we can't just brush over that in our schools. We've got to make sure that's really a core part of our curriculum delivery. Yeah. Digital representation, how we appear online is a huge part of how we are going to work as well as learn. You're talking about career and technical education, sort of, or at least the idea of education for purposes of career, you know, growth, adjusting to the adult world. That is also a use case for EdTech that has been enormously on the rise in the U.S., 
very much inspired by European edtech, workforce investment in edtech for the workplace has continued to rise throughout the sort of ups and downs of the last few years in K-12 and university. We've spoken to, you know, companies like Multiverse, which is a U.S. and you know U.K.-based company that also works in the U.S. to do apprenticeships that kind of attempt to serve as a possible replacement or an alternative path to college. You've been a champion of education that supports students' abilities to emerge from school with career-relevant skills that allows them to find fulfilling and remunerative work, you know, outside of the school environment. Where do you think EdTech is right now with regards to career and technical education? Who's doing interesting work in the field? Where do you think the field is going right now? Technology, it's an interesting one. I think what we've seen is the requirement of skills for the workforce, the things that we previously would have put top of the priority list have shifted in recent years. I still maintain that the most important skill that as an employer we look for in people are their interpersonal and communication skills alongside their resilience and inquisitiveness, shall we say. And then we start to build the layers. And I think what we've seen, and within the UK, I'm an apprenticeship ambassador. So that's grown. Perhaps the traction for that was more about the fact that actually education post-18 is an expensive journey. And for many, the ability to learn and acquire skills and qualifications whilst also working at the same time is far more accessible. I think, you know, we want a level playing field wherever possible. But I also think that for employers, we are recognizing, particularly in the technology space, because ironically, for many jobs, when, when somebody applies for a role, we can say, oh, you've got 10 years, you've got 20 years experience, that's a value to my business. But is it with technology? The actual code, the approaches, the opportunities, the tools we use, they're all new. They're all being redefined on a regular basis. So actually, another big tick in the box is age is not a barrier. You can have just as much experience at 22 as somebody at 40 of a particular new tool, technology or approach. And I think what employers are recognizing is in now an increasingly hybrid workplace and the cost of individuals that actually one of the better approaches is to grow your own, is bring people in with the aptitude and appetite to learn and develop them into their way of working and the way they develop around the technical tools that you need. And actually, the best tech companies are not only co-producers in the education space, so working with schools and educators, but they're also organizations that recognize you constantly have to be refining and adapting the technology you offer. You can't stand still and just keep bolting on a few extra buttons on the toolbar. You know, I'm a big fan when it comes to concepts around digital disruption and with plenty of good case studies about how that's happened over the last 20 years. But, you know, in in a very potted way, I, I think that element of recognizing that digital skills can be acquired without needing to go through the traditional pathways is really key. I would say there's one other lever which has changed over the last few years, and that's parental perception. As a parent, we have an aspiration that our child leaves their formal education and they go to college or university, and there's a measure of success in their academic journey. Up until quite recently, the perceptions of alternative pathways whether it was apprenticeships or whether it was vocational qualification or technical education, were seen to be more the trades, the electrician, the plumber, the craftsman, the the roles that were fundamentally the things that keep our country going, but perhaps parentally weren't the ones that they aspired for their children to do. And suddenly we recognize now that actually those labels and those career options, because of the diversity and breadth of, of pathways within those umbrellas, 
are just as valid and just as important and most importantly provide just as big a career opportunity for their children following those pathways. And one thing that I think still needs to change is certainly here in the UK, schools are partly measured by the success of how many of their learners leave the school and go on to a university. Now, I think that's wrong because we're looking at but one pathway. What we should be saying is how many of our children leave our school and go on to in, into another form of continued education and a profession or a career. And if that's the pathway of choice, then we've done our job. What we care most about is young people that leave school and have nowhere to go in their next steps in life. So I think if we start to shift and being linked to metaverse and other you know, high profile organizations, whether we start to see that that almost that validation from the workplace that these are actually in-demand placements and opportunities to develop skills, then suddenly we'll we'll reinvent a little bit. I've seen some amazing people come through the doing technical courses on the apprenticeship program within the UK. I've had many within our own organization that are now junior and middle managers after a, a fairly limited period of time. And actually, they are well ahead of the curve with graduates arriving into the business at the end of their pure, more pure academic journey. The point about not measuring schools purely on how many people they send to university or to post-secondary education really resonates with me right now. And I think I'm sure it resonates a lot with our listeners as well in that the world has changed so much in some really core ways that you just named. You know, just for my two cents on this before we move on really quickly, two things that I'm hearing you say that I think are very important for the ed tech world is that lifelong learning and alternative pathways were both two concepts that I think have gotten lip service for a long time. We've talked about them for a while, but in the last few years, it feels like they've become much, much more concrete. There really is access to lifelong learning in almost any field, and it's basically required, and it's often offered by employers in a way that it never was in the past, well beyond existing corporate training of the past. And then, as you mentioned, alternative pathways, which used to be seen as the trades, or the, which can be fine, but also as you say, parental aspirations don't always go that way, especially in the U.S., frankly. There's really a change. Instead of those certification programs being for, for plumbing, they're for our electrician or for transportation, you know, they're now for data science and user experience design and coding, of course. And that is such a shift in how we perceive education, you know, sociologically. It's really interesting to hear you call that out in exactly that way. And, you know, we've just seen some of these pathways explode in not only popularity, but also status. It actually, I remember a really interesting study from a few years ago that said that all things being equal, parents would prefer that their students get a Google internship than a Harvard degree. And that was a little bit of a mind blowing moment, but it speaks to exactly what you're saying. Actually, a Google internship is more selective than a Harvard degree at this point. And arguably more directly practical and more of a fast track to a, a lucrative and status-filled, you know, and fulfilling, hopefully, career. I'd love to hear your response to any of that, and then we got to talk data. Surprise, surprise. The world is changing, you know. Technology has infused everywhere. And it's sad in a way, but we do need to make sure that within within our schools as well, one of our roles as our, as our learners develop through the later part of their school years is about careers guidance, is about thinking about pathways. And that's a tough one because at many cases, we're, we're trying to educate our learners now and give them a breadth of courses 
that will equip them for a career in 10 years' time that is yet to be defined. For many years, people will have heard of things like Moore's Law, where technology gets twice as fast and half the size every year. And I feel as I get longer and longer in the tooth in the ed tech space that, you know, one thing I figure out every day is the more I learn, the more I realize I've got to learn. It's a never ending cycle. So with that in mind, I think we can't afford to just say, yeah, I get that. And yes, careers in Google and so on are really helpful. We need to be reflecting and saying, So what have we done to change the provision of what we're offering across our course content? How have we changed the weighting? How have we made sure that our learners have access to the platforms or the opportunities that will allow them to be competitive with all those other young people from around the world who too will be applying for an internship at Google or Microsoft or Apple or anywhere else? And I think when we start thinking like that, there's there's actually a bit of pressure on education systems around the world now to do more about that. And it's something that I've been working on with the OECD for many years, not wishing to go off too much on a segue on our conversation. But for many years, we'll know if we look around the world, we have a measure of high performing school systems and we have the PISA rankings. And that looks at all of the different national education systems and said, hey, you know what? Finland's great. Singapore's great. They come out top of the the league tables. Well, those league tables are based on 15-year-olds in a very clearly defined set of academic measures. What the OECD is now looking at is an education system for human flourishing. And the argument, which is why I'm passionate and I'm involved from a, a UK perspective, is that actually I don't want to say this school's best because the children manage to retain the most knowledge and come out with the best grades, although that's one thing that we'd love to see. But what about how happy that child was? What about their personal development and resilience? Did they leave school thinking, never again am I going to open a book? I got the grades, but never again. That was hell. Or are they going to say, I've got a deep love of learning. I'm passionate about reading, about inquiring about more information. I want to follow this and build on it for the next 40 years that I contribute to society. And if we want to measure school systems and say that's the model to follow, then it's way too narrow to focus purely on who's retained the most knowledge. And that resonates with me because one of the pathways that they're looking at when it comes to human flourishing is about skills digital skills, and how the role of things like AI, both within the workplace, at home, and in school, is going to change. It is changing the landscape, whether we like it or not. The input we have is whether it's for the better or not. Incredibly interesting. And and, I mean, AI is a trigger word right now. As soon as I hear that evoked, I want to go off on a whole conversation about it. But it's really, really interesting point about human flourishing. And, you know, there's different terms for that kind of whole person approach rather than knowledge regurgitation or standardized test scores. Many, you know, people have lots of different ways of phrasing it, but it feels like there's becoming more and more of a consensus worldwide. I may be projecting here, but I think there is that the goal of education is not just a single pathway through university or post-secondary. It's not purely one thing. It has to involve career success. It has to involve lifelong learning, as you just mentioned, and has to involve students and people becoming happy, productive citizens across the board. It's just a different perception of education. You know, one other aspect of edtech that's incredibly important, but separate from academics and something you've spent a lot of time thinking about is student data privacy, how to avoid exposure to inappropriate content or advertising, how to keep schools safe from cyber attacks. There's a, there's a whole world of sort of the infrastructure of how education and edtech works 
to keep student data and students safe. You have extensive experience in this, in, in cybersecurity, in privacy. And, you know, our listeners know that Europe also has extensive regulations on privacy and the UK has some of its own. Often, you know, the GDPR is this data protection regulation law that many, many people in US tech and ed tech, you know, have to know a lot about if they're going to work in Europe. How do you think about data? How do you think about GDPR, safety and privacy? I know this is a huge question, but give us a little bit of an overview of how you've experienced these topics and what people should really know about them. Feel free to interrupt me in about three hours from now when I finish waffling. (laughs) (laughs) So in a nutshell, I think it's good that we've got processing and regulations in place. And I think like all these things, the word appropriate is the thing that always springs to mind in any legislation. We have to recognize in an increasingly digital world, we are going to capture and store more data about ourselves and particularly our young people. And we therefore need to have the right measures in place and the right best practice to ensure that data is not used in a way that could be harmful to any child. Within the education space, um, GDPR came along and across Europe, it created a fresh set of protocols, both in terms of our awareness of how we keep our data safe and also an awareness and a right for the individual to find out what data was held about them. It also put some mechanisms in place to make sure that when we were looking at technology for any nature, whether it's personal or for in the, in the education setting, we knew where that data was stored. Now, we have standard policies that are adopted. So in a UK school, we have a thing called a data protection impact assessment, which roughly means if you like a bit of software that you want to use in the classroom, before you can actually subscribe to it and upload your student cohort data, you need to know where is that data being stored, who has access to it, How long is the data being stored for? And what are the implications if that data was breached? And you form a basic risk assessment based on the nature of the information stored. Is it lots of personal information or is it purely initials and some scorecards? And you form a risk assessment of whether that's an appropriate tool to take. Now, the pandemic kind of amplified that because many educators and organizations around the world in sort of March 2020 were scrambling to find alternative solutions to mitigate the the learning loss from not being in the classroom. And I thought it was a good period of time solely, I hasten to add, for the reason that it was a real catalyst for innovation. For the first time, many educators were allowed to go and try stuff whereas before that wasn't an option on the table for them. And in trying stuff, some things worked well and some things didn't. And that's fine. That's what you would expect. But it also highlighted the need that we have tighter controls on the data that we use. More often than not, the challenges and the narration around data within the education systems comes down to lack of transparency. Parents having concerns about the tools the school chooses to use, but because the school hasn't been clear in sharing its data processing a policy, its data privacy policy hasn't signposted the tools that are there. I think the ed tech sector has also had to up its game. There were many vendors who had really, really poor data processing agreements on their websites. Some were in tech clearly constructed by a team of lawyers and they were, you know, 60, 100 pages long and were intended to be entirely inaccessible. And now we're saying actually, and I signpost rubrics for schools for how to best select and evaluate EdTech. And one of the, the criteria for me is if you don't understand the data processing agreement, if they're not making it clear where your data is being stored and what happens to it, then you should pause. And the onus is on the vendor to signpost that. And you have to question why have they made it so difficult for me to understand. I think there's a moral purpose on EdTech vendors. And we are a community of vendors across EdTech. Many know each other. It's a sector where 
if you're a successful EdTech vendor, you are not starting a transaction with a school, you're starting a relationship. It's an ongoing process. So you have to have the right moral purpose and people get found out if they promise things that they don't deliver on. So I think with that in mind, there is a greater onus now on having technology and recognizing that education is not corporate tools in the edu space. They are education tools. And as such, the way that we treat, we protect and we preserve data needs to be undertaken with that basis in mind. So it's a combination. The final bit on cybersecurity is absolutely, it's a real concern. But I would always argue, people talk and ask me to come and have a talk about building a digital strategy. And I think their expectation is my first opening conversation will be, here's a list of shiny things on the shelf that you could have in your school if you've got the budget. When actually the first part of a digital strategy is to reflect on what you've got, where is it, how effectively is it being used, what software, applications, subscriptions are you paying for annually that possibly you actually aren't using within your teaching practice on a regular basis. And once you've got a sense of what have you got, where is it, and who's using it, you're in a much better position to say, and how do I know it's maintained and up to date? Because most security starts with missing of patches, outdated software, and then it follows on with those user guides, the best practice, the school guides that go to staff in acceptable use of their devices, the students' acceptable use policies on how they use the technology. And again, you can enforce that. So start of the academic year, everyone has to sign that they've read and seen that. And then it comes back to gasp, shock, horror, effective communication, something we all advocate in schools, but aren't always quite as good at as we claim to be. And so it's not, you know, it's a much like anything else for professional development. It is not a start of the academic year conversation, period. It is something that needs to be continuous. It needs to be an ongoing reflection of best practice, how we do things, a reminder of what we share, a reminder of how we treat emails from people that we don't know, how we open things, where we store our information, making sure we have secure backups, making sure we have a clear plan of our infrastructure and that that's running the latest firmware and updates on it. The list goes on and there's some great resources out there, but I'd always argue I always use the Donald Rumsfeld quote of the, the known knowns, but it's the unknown unknowns we have to be worried about. So much of the catalyst is actually by forcing you to do that digital strategy. What you're actually doing is you're signposting all the elements that make up your digital ecosystem and you're bringing into conversation the point about, well, for all of them, we need to evidence and review their effectiveness and their impact and value to the school. But at the same time, we can also evidence whether they are appropriate and secure and safe as well. So many pearls of wisdom in that answer. There's a lot to unpack. I want to ask you about one aspect of it that really stands out to me because it's been sort of a through line in a lot of my ed tech work, which is you mentioned that you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of innovation happening specifically because some of the classic regulations or processes were sort of thrown to the wind in the chaos of the pandemic. And that spurred a lot of innovation. And, you know, when I hear you listing all of the incredibly important aspects of, you know, digital strategy and cybersecurity and data policy, it always makes me feel like, you know, there's sort of two different mindsets that could be taken. There's a sort of security mindset where the first thing you're thinking about is ensuring student privacy, is ensuring data privacy, is avoiding, you know, ransomware attacks. And then there's the sort of throw caution to the wind. Hey, I just found an amazing tool. My students are going to love it. Let's try it kind of, you know, mode that obviously can be very dangerous from the data privacy standpoint, but can be very sort of exciting and innovative and fast moving and agile from a learning standpoint or an engagement standpoint. And I'd love to hear you talk about sort of the, how these two 
mindsets sort of interact? Because I think sometimes from within the edtech world, you hear things like, wow, we're going to have this data on our students, which means we can make it interoperable with other systems, or we can personalize their education, or we can do make adaptive systems to tailor everything to each student. And then from the other side, it's, well, schools and parents and administrators, of course, don't want the data to sort of be flowing freely from place to place or in different or in the wrong servers. I'd love to hear you sort of talk, because I know you've been on both sides of this world about, you know, how these two ways of seeing the world sort of can come together. I think like all things, there's always a yin and a yang, but I think it's really helpful because let's start with a really simple fact. Why would we assume that somebody selecting the next software solution we're going to use in our classroom will both be an expert from a pedagogy perspective and from a technology perspective? Now, we often use kind of research that's well-shaped for educators, things like TPAC, Kohler and Mishra, where we kind of recognize that a teacher's got their pedagogical knowledge and they've got their content knowledge of their subject, they come together, and technology sits as the third circle of the Venn diagram. We can't be experts at everything. So when I talk to schools about building a digital strategy, and to be fair, I magpie lots of resources. I've seen some great resources in the US in Ohio, Pickerington School District. Brian Seymour has done some great work there that I know he's shared at ISTE. But we start with that kind of sense of if we're going to evaluate, we start at the very beginning of we're looking for a new tool that's going to help us do something in the classroom. Actually, best practice is to separate the two streams between curriculum and technology. So the curriculum side, the educator can say, does this tool I'm looking for, what's my checklist? Does it align with my current curriculum? Have I done any kind of review of the features and functionality that's within it? Have I checked that we don't already have another tool that sort of does the same thing? And maybe there's some saving to be had here. And do we actually have a clear understanding of its instructional purpose? What are we hoping to achieve? And while they're doing that, there's somebody else from a technology point of view putting their hat on saying, are we happy this is going to work effectively with the devices that we have within our school now and in the future? Um, will it work on our current infrastructure or is it going to create additional load or capacity that's a challenge? Have we reflected on its data privacy policy and how it's being processed? And maybe just to save a bit of repetition, is it going to roster with our existing student data systems, whether it's through Clever or Classlink or whatever it might be? And you kind of follow those two through and then you say, OK, well, if you're both happy, now's a good time where you can actually evaluate the product. You've checked off those two lists. Now you can start looking and saying, well, have a group of you got together and actually now looked at this in detail? Has the vendor come in and given you a presentation? Have you tested it out in your setting, in your classroom? Not just for five minutes on a trade show booth, but have you actually used it? And did you actually pilot it? And have you sat down and reviewed the outcomes of the pilot? Were there any clear evidence that it impacted in the way that you anticipated? And then if you're happy, you can go and speak to purchasing decisions about buying something. But what you've done is you've got two perspectives that it's going to be functional and scalable in your environment, that it's fit for the purpose it was intended. And you've also signposted no surprises for your technical team because they now know that this is a solution that they were part of the process for and is going to be adopted. Because one thing we also find in schools and the lesson learned is we buy a bit of curriculum software, we install it. A week later, an educator playing with it has a problem, and they assume if they ring tech support, they are an expert on any and every application used in the school. And in many cases, they'd never even heard of the product, but were expected to answer and provide tech questions. So building that together also forces that closer alignment with how we actually manage and therefore get the most out of our ed tech. 
That idea of these dual checklists, one for the pedagogical use cases, instructional meaning of the tool, and one for the data privacy, security, infrastructure devices, you make it seem so obvious. I have never heard somebody say it so clearly, and I think that is incredibly great best practice for institutions of all type, for families, for universities, for school districts, that is a very powerful model. And then ideally, you know, it's a process to make sure that those two sides are rowing in the same direction. But that's really, really interesting way to look at, at procurement. There's one more topic I want to chat with you about in terms of, you know, non-traditional education, which is this concept of whole child or holistic approaches to education. This has some relationship to the mental health sphere that we've been talking about. But it is a term, especially the term whole child has sort of gone in and out of fashion in the US. People are trying to figure out the best way to help the whole field understand that schools are beyond academic. What does your whole child mean to you? You know, how do you think the field can accelerate this without getting caught up in, in politics or in, you know, <laughs> arguing over semantics? I think it can be a quite a divisive conversation, sadly, because on one sense, we've got a statutory expectation of what our schools provide for our learners. And on the other hand, we've got amazing educators doing way more than's on the job description and absolutely focused around more of the concept of the whole child. And maybe it links a little bit to that earlier conversation about human flourishing. But I suppose at the heart of it, you've got the academic development. You've got that that pillar of the whole child, which is about building their their academic capabilities, their knowledge and their skills that we want them to flourish at throughout their journey. And alongside that, the bit that I'm very passionate about, we've got that cognitive development that I, I want to have those critical thinking skills. I want to have the tools and equipment to be able to challenge and research and understand. And then I've also got physical you know, my, I want to be a child that's active, gets involved in sports developmentally. I think that's really, really key. We've had the conversations that have been amplified the last few years, I suppose, in terms of thinking about mental health. That's such a broad umbrella that we can be thinking about how we develop children's mental health, resilience. One part is the ways that we can put processes in to provide appropriate support for all of our different learner types. And the other is about how we can implement strategies that build in self-resilience and hopefully support some of the learners from reaching a point where their mental health impacts on their ability to perform at the levels they want. And I think it's a, a two-part process in that regard. The challenge with mental health is it is but not one person's role. Often mental health, depending on what we're thinking about, in the same way as we think about our learners that have different de developmental challenges, it can often be about a, a collegiate approach involving lots of services and support that need to come together. Now, I'd argue we've now developed the tools that means there's no excuse for not being able to collaborate and co-produce on the ways that we can put wraparound care for our learners. Sadly, one of the challenges tends to be money and resource and capacity, the number of specialists that are there for them. So we've kind of got that social emotional development. And that comes round to, you know, another thing that I'm a fan of. What did we see at the, one of the biggest absences for our learners during the pandemic? It was their interaction with their peers. It was their opportunity to be involved in experiential activities. And sometimes I'll hear educators say to me, ah, oh, experiential is great, but it doesn't matter unless it's actually aligned with the curriculum and they're not getting something out of it. Well, yeah, but actually sometimes it's about that child's 
social emotional well-being and actually we think about the the drama performances at schools the schools competitions where children that may not excel academically can excel in different ways we think about the the music and the concerts that children's performed and, and other activities that the school trips where for the first time we were away from home and we developed some resilience and map reading skills with a compass in the woods, all those kind of things. And I will always argue, for as long as anybody is willing to take a listen, that if you ask most people when they leave school, what are their fondest memories? It will be the field trip we did to the forest or our trip to the coast or that museum when we had a laugh on the coach. Or it will, of course, be that teacher that always came up with crazy experiments or something different. That is a key pillar on having a love of learning. Those are the things that shape our attitude. And so for me, the whole person is both that well-being. It's about their own social and mental health. It's about their resilience. It's about their physical health. It's about equipping them with the skills, that cognitive development to be curious, inquisitive and robust in later life. And it's to give them the academic development, the content, the knowledge, the facts that ultimately provides context. And they need the context to use their critical thinking skills effectively on that baseline. Of course, within that, I'm going to say, of course, they need to be able to read and write and do other things as well. But that all comes under that academic umbrella. Let's be honest, when it comes to measuring our school and how well they're doing and all the things I've just covered, in most cases, they're only going to measure on one thing. How much do you remember? How much is the measure of progress this child has done developmentally? And actually, if you achieve that learning... We don't really care whether the child was happy, sad, disconnected from learning, disengaged, as long as they retain the information, happy days. Well, actually, when you walk out of school and into the workplace as an employer, as I've said before, my first thing will be, okay, well, you got through the door because you've got some qualifications, but I want to know about you. What are you going to bring to my team? How are you going to interact with my customers? How are you going to innovate new ideas for me? Are you going to be robust? Are you going to be somebody that adds value to our team? And so suddenly all those things that we deem when we measure a school's performance as being not that important are, and they're really important. So we need to catch up in education and we need to measure on the same measures we're going to expect for the next 40 years of our working profession. One of the things I love most about that answer is that it combines some of the existing roles of school in and especially the roles of school that we don't always think about as the core concepts of school the friendships the field trips the drama clubs the talent shows the the concerts it frames them rightfully i think as part of our investment in whole child education you know gym class teams absolutely yeah i think that's a really interesting you know as we so in the us right now we're going through this moment where social emotional learning there's becoming a political backlash to that term whole child people are trying to figure out if that's the way to do it and i think what's really interesting about your your structuring and your framing of all of this is the idea that education has always been invested in multiple areas of development for the child. Now that we're in this new world, lots of technology enhanced education, lots of remote education or alternative pathways, we can't lose that core idea that we're providing many services. Right now I'm, I'm in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is in the middle of a school strike. 420,000 students are, are not in school today because the uh, teachers are all, and the, the, the teacher aides and the bus drivers are all on strike. And one of the things that the district is doing is giving out 
food, of course, right? Giving out those lunches and breakfasts to families that, were, that rely yeah, on school food. I mean, talk about a service that people didn't originally think of as core to schools' missions. They certainly don't measure that on any standardized test. But wow, that's the physical aspect. That's the nutrition aspect. There's so much to unpack there. And I, I really love where where you're going with that. We have two more topics I want to get to. And I know we're getting a little long time. So let's, let's keep moving. But that's so fascinating. You've seen a lot of learning trends come and go or learning learning paradigms come and go. You've seen a lot of companies rise and fall in the ed tech space. We have a lot of listeners who are founders and entrepreneurs and starting their own ed tech ventures. We have others who are investors. We have others who are operators who are working in established ed tech companies of all sizes in a lot of different countries. I guess my question is, what advice would you give to those who are looking around at this moment in time and saying, Wow, you know, EdTech is not brand new. It's been around for a few decades. It's evolved. How can I learn from the things that have come and gone over time and avoid the mistakes of the past and really, you know, not fall into the same traps that other movements have? Not be the next in bloom, for example, not be the next blackboard that loses its loses a lot of its advantage because of the UX. What kind of feedback would you give to entrepreneurs? I might not be the most typical respondent on this. From my introduction, you know, I spend half my time as an EdTech CEO and half my time as chair of a multi-academy trust, clusters of schools in the UK supporting schools and education. So I perhaps have a slightly different weighting when it comes to my role as an EdTech CEO, because my view is if you're interested in EdTech as an opportunity from an investor perspective and an opportunity to be lucrative because it's a hot sector at the moment, then you don't necessarily resonate with my values because I don't believe you do this with with profitability being the key driver. In fact, the education space with public money is always going to be one where it has to be value for money and sustainability. It's not a quick in and out. As I referenced earlier, you start a relationship with schools. If you're good and in the long term, of course, you need to be profitable. You need to be sustainable because the profits are what drives your investment and innovation. But it needs to be for the right purpose. So, so maybe there'll be some listening saying, well, I don't agree with that. In which case, good luck to you, but you may not agree with all my th- my thinking. Fundamentally, in this sector, and it is a high popular sector, certainly during and actually on the backside of the pandemic, some of the multipliers that were going on edtech companies and investment levels were pretty aggressive. So definitely a space that people are interested in. I've always said the fundamental difference in education, and, and maybe not entirely unique to education, is that the best solutions are built around co-production. The real shift is not to create a solution that you think people need, engage with schools and then tell them why they need it. You need to understand what the challenges are in schools, where you can shape evidence that your technology or your approach to a solution can be refined and then develop from that. And it's something that, um, and this is not me doing a plug, that I wrote back in, about in my secret EdTech diary because I decided to do a chapter specifically for vendors rather than the rest of the book, which is all for educators, which is really to kind of focus that there's a different kind of approach. So you, you're either going to develop, I suppose, with that idea that you come up with a, a concept, we want to make something, we're going to set aside our resources and our team that are going to develop something. And then all the way through that process, we've got the stop gaps where we're actually engaging with end users, the co-production element, where we're getting feedback, litmus tests from the market, what we do. And if we do that, we kind of end up with more of a, what often gets referred to as an emergent strategy. You're refining all the time. Typically, we tend to develop technology on the basis of a number of variables. There's opportunity. There is our own technical capability. There is our ideas, the creativity. And the big one we don't like to mention is what our competitors are doing. 
And typically what happens is a new solution gets released at the point where it's just about got the functionality that is appropriate for the market because it's new and we want it out the door quick. And we tell our customers it does this, but coming soon in the next release will be a few more features. And over the next few years, we add features based on user feedback, that co-production. We refine certain things so they're more effective, but we also see what other solutions are doing that compete with us. And so we try and add in either features they've already got or a bit of one-upsmanship. And over time, we keep building those layers and we get a product after 10 years that's gone well past what the actual customer originally wanted. We're off the top. And that's the bit for me where there's the digital disruption, which is you've now gone well past what a customer needs. You're just adding things because you can or to differentiate. And actually, that's not effective. So at that point, you have to do a reset and say, I'm now going to refine the way and actually redesign the way I deliver a solution to a problem. I'm going to package it differently based on all that experience. And again, I, I reset a, a new point at what schools need. And what we've seen is this, it's a little bit alien for the ed tech sector in many ways, is we've suddenly moved from the product X and Y, how do we compare? Let's put them side by side and look at the functionality that's available to now being much more focused on research to inform ed tech, pedagogical standards, user accessibility, ease of use, being device agnostic infrastructure flexible because we don't possibly can't possibly know what technology in a physical sense might be available to us in three years from now five years from now so we don't want to invest in technology that's going to lock us into one platform and we're also getting more savvy maybe people like myself are trying to share it and people are saying hang on you're an edtech vendor you don't want to share too much out but we're also making sure that our systems aren't sticky and sticky is something that many vendors are very good at which is once you've bought into that ecosystem, it's really hard to get that historical data, curriculum student data out, which makes you more reluctant to navigate to what could be a better solution or a cheaper solution that does the same thing. You know, and there's there's plenty of vendors that started off, shall we say, selling books in a bookshop that became an online bookstore that have diversified doing music and all other resources that you can access. And one of the things is you don't really want to leave, even if you could get your books cheaper somewhere else, because there's other things that they do that's really a value for you. And, and it's all the fact it's one side and it's one ecosystem. It's a bit the same with EdTech, which is we want to make sure that by the nature of convenience, we're not using average technology. We want to be best of breed. But best of breed in EdTech is not just that measure of all those things. It's actually, it's got to be cheap. It's got to be affordable. It's got to be sustainable. And nobody wants to buy a fantastic product from a company that's not going to be here in a year's time. So actually that evidence, that actual corporate values, that infrastructure, those white papers from other schools and districts that have used the product first. And I often talk about there's four different zones you can you can go into when it comes to EdTech evidence. I've really been amplified now. So I think there's a real shift in the ecosystem. Fantastic opportunities, because one thing I think we can all agree on is um, education is not a sector that's going to disappear. We're going to need to always educate. It's just we're redefining the landscape. And we touched on it earlier, and I saw your, your eyes light up when I mentioned the AI word. I have to <laughs> say, normally, I am not a fan of AI in the written sense, because whenever I see it, I think someone's put my name on it. And I keep saying, Al will disrupt education. And I'm thinking, well, I'm certainly not pl planning to do that, but it's always AI. But that changes the goalpost, doesn't it? Because it's new technology, new opportunities, which means it's not a saturated market. It's a virgin landscape. If you've got an innovative idea that will really meet a need, and I suppose the final part of my ramblings around that is um, when we think about school priorities, we've always talked about school priorities as being a measure of student outcomes, pretty much, period. 
but actually, if we look at the strategic responsibilities of schools now, we're also now thinking about staff recruitment and retention. We're thinking about well-being. We're thinking about financial viability. Well, actually, EdTech has a huge role to play in all those things. Some EdTech is nothing to do with student outcomes, but it's all about making a teacher's job easier, providing audio feedback rather than written feedback, providing more effective use of data to identify where there are gaps, providing easier ways of communicating and sharing learning resources across a district rather than within a school. The list goes on, but they're all new measures that we're not used to using as our measures of impact. So many interesting trends in there. I'm going to pluck a few of them out just to highlight. And then I'd love to ask you more about my secret ed tech diary and and some of your thoughts about the landscape and, and utilization. So I hear this idea of switching costs that in the past, there have been these locked in contracts or that, you know, ecosystems in the ed tech space have really sort of expected and wanted to be the single point solution that and they keep building features and try to make it more and more difficult to leave, you know, for a, a school or a district to leave their their system. But it sounds like what you're saying, and I, I agree with this, is that there's, because technology has accelerated so much, there people don't want to be as locked into long-term contracts. They don't want to be working with only one solution because you never know. Things are changing so fast. There's startups and new companies entering with all sorts of interesting ideas. There's also expansions of, of ed tech companies into new spaces. And then, of course, AI, I can't go go without responding to that. I agree. It, virgin landscape is such a great phrase for that. We are in a moment where both large players and small players are starting to say, oh my goodness, this could be a huge accelerant to the business, to the learning, to the personalization. What do we do here? And it's creating yet another round of, if I'm a school procurement person right now, if I'm Arizona State that, you know, tends to use every new technology, I'm going to take a pause and say, oh my goodness, you know, six months from now, there's going to be 10 new companies that do this thing. A year from now, there'll be 20. I really have to stay on top of this field rather than expecting one vendor to sort of continue to evolve to meet my needs and then go way past my needs, as you mentioned. One of the things that's interesting on that is in the early days of computer technology, the thing we used to talk about from a programming point of view was garbage in, garbage out. If you write poor code, you get poor product. Well, you know what? I think that's the same when it comes to AI. One thing we've seen already, whether it's ChatGPT or BARD or whatever tool you're looking at, is it's already identified the importance of effective questioning, shaping the question and signposting the information you want. Actually, ironically, back to those those skills we talked about for our learners, shaping those kind of questioning skills and, and being able to, to dig a bit deeper. And so I think the same applies. We've got this fantastic opportunity with new technologies. Again, we've got data privacy considerations in there. So we've got to be mindful of that. But we've also got an opportunity. We've got a consideration, that hidden one when it comes to AI, which is about the data sets, the actual breadth of information we're accessing for its purpose. But in terms of time saving, looking at the fantastic resources for creating lesson plans and resource sheets that can support teachers. And yes, there's a fear that all young people could use it at home to cheat. But last time I checked, you know, the evolution of technology, we've only got to say the Alexa or Siri word. And there's devices in our house that will answer many questions for us and have done for quite some time. And I've always said, you know what, let's think about accessibility here for a lot of learners They've got amazing cognitive skills and content retention, but actually asking them to sit with a pen and paper for two hours is a real challenge. Why on earth are we not reaching the point where we can ask the question and let a child talk about it? They'll probably trigger and capture far more evidence of the content they understand and process in that period of time. 
you can't push on AI. It's like the tide coming in. You can, you're never going to stop it. It is a natural focus. What we need to be mindful of is there is a space for education AI, tools and solutions that are curated and ring-fenced specifically for learning environments that can be a safe space where we know the data sets and the information used is appropriate to the age of our learners. And that's the thing we should be really focusing on. I agree. And I think there's a lot of anybody listening right now, there is a moment in time right now where AI is out there. This clumsy term prompt engineering is coming into a play with this idea of how do you ask the right type of questions to get the right type of information or output you, you want. And there's this enormous gap between the commercial AI and it's, you know, th- these APIs and how this could be actually used in schools, meeting the data privacy concerns that you've named, Al, the na- meeting the appropriateness or, you know, the mental health concerns. There's already been talk about how, how AI can really mess with people's sense of reality and mental health. There's this incredible opportunity for EdTech to come in and say, what tools, what structures need to be in place for this unbelievably powerful tool to be used in an everyday way in the classroom, in innovative ways that actually prepare students for a world in which this is going to be part of everybody's work. I'm sitting chatting with you, and I think what's lovely is you, we, we can all see these opportunities on the horizon. And I think, you know what, let's just pause and, and reflect on the fact that we're talking about positives here, opportunities. We're not talking about, well, we know it's tough and it's challenging, but we've got no solutions to hand. The, the, the problem we've got is there are so many solutions. How do we pick the right one? Well, that's a challenge, I'll grant you. But what a position to be in, in terms of this is something that we've not had as a catalyst for the last 20, 30 years in education. And that's why I think it's so significant. And again, I've heard people far more informed on AI than me talking about that when we look at AI in a year's time, what we're currently dealing with will seem, frankly, prehistoric. That's the pace of change. Yeah, it's totally amazing. I've been spending more hours than I'd care to admit with MidJourney and ChatGPT and trying to figure out how these things might work and literally been trying to replicate the use cases of existing edtech tools saying, can this thing do what this company does? And so far, surprisingly often it can. It's a really interesting moment. So, so speaking of the rise of evidence that you've cited a few times and the rise of solutions, all the positive options that we have. You know, we often on the podcast cite a learn platform study that basically says that in the U.S., students use more than 70 different ed tech tools on average in a given year. Teachers use more than 80. Districts use far more because of all the types you've mentioned that are about, you know, privacy or, or school sustainability. When you have so many solutions, so many different options, you, you've mentioned how, you know, you, for one aspect of that is if you call IT, they don't have any idea what tool you're working with because you have 70 different ones all being paid for by the school. But it also means that some are being used and being effective much more than others. And I know this is something you think a lot about, about, you know, school contracts and usage. I want to get your thoughts just as a, as a final topic here on utilization. I mean, the simple answer is, you know, we can talk about technology till, till whenever, but the, the distinction between effective and non-effective use of technology invariably involves the human being. And one of the most important things we have is if we have so many solutions within our schools, how on earth do we expect our teachers to have the level of professional development and confidence with all the tools to use them effectively? Because we sure as heck don't provide the time within the day for them to learn those. We're expecting them to be YouTube ninjas in the evenings and sharing with their PLN on social media and developing them. So in one sense, actually, less is more if we are actually thinking about skill set. 
and signposting across our schools and districts who are the go-to people so we can share confidence. And confidence tends to be the catalyst where staff are more likely to try and use tech. Then we've got the, the simple hard facts, which is if you've got maybe 10 schools in your district, there's opportunities where if you are buying a piece of technology and all your schools use the same technology, there will be economies of scale. There will be economies of scale in your purchase price because you've got the natural power and lever in what you're negotiating. But you'll also have huge economies of scale in terms of technical support and infrastructure because you'll have one team supporting one instance of something. And potentially, depending on the nature of the tool, you'll also be able to have district or in the UK terms, trust-wide central aggregated data of the effectiveness of that tool, which actually helps with reporting. And we always say, you know, data is not useful until it becomes context and it's the context that's key. So bringing that together and providing comparators of similar children in similar cohorts at similar times is suddenly when we can start to draw practical and effective conclusions. The other part is, again, it falls on vendors. You know, for many years, too many years, I think I've mentioned the 30, my business, NetSupport, we've had lots of standalone products. Start of the pandemic, we launched Classroom.Cloud, all the solutions coming together in one single cloud interface, a lot simpler to access. Again, some people like cloud solutions, some don't, and that's fine too. I'm not an advocate that the cloud is the panacea to everything. I mean, it's very helpful in many regards, I must admit. But what we recognized was actually you want a single administration point, one single set of integration with your single sign-on and your your school rostering. And then the different tools are depending on the user. Some teachers need to see just the instructional text functionality. Some need to see student safeguarding and well-being data. Some people just need to be a techie to be able to diagnose if there's a problem on a machine because if they doesn't start up at the start of the lesson. Teachers will lose confidence using those Chromebooks or those iPads. They'll they'll flip back to a more traditional method of teaching because they don't want the disruption at the start of the lesson. And so I think all paths come to simplicity, not to say don't look at new tech, but on a digital journey, it's better to adopt two or three new things, embed them, measure impact and build confidence, and then build the next layer on afterwards than it is to think well, if we try 10 things now, something will stick. Because the odds are all 10 will fail for different reasons, whether it's time, confidence, not really understanding the implementation. And also, yeah, it's hard on public money. I'd much rather take small risks and make sure it's right for our school than get too carried away. Excellent rundown on a very complicated topic. And I think, you know, even though teachers use technically, you know, dozens of edtech tools, I think most educators will say, yes, 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 there are these available, but there are two or three that I use that I really know how to use that I've really trained on that I reuse on an everyday basis. I think, I think that understanding of building in layers rather than throwing, you know, spaghetti against the wall and saying, we'll give them access to 50 tools and every teacher will figure out what they're going to do. I think sometimes the teachers know it, but those the next layer up who are looking to shift and make changes often will implement more significant changes without really having that voice of consideration first from the people on the coalface. And it's also relevant to that edtech vendor strategy of going teacher first, of going to teachers, trying to get them to use, you know, freemium or, or starting to use a product and then trying to sell it into the school or into the district. Well, you know, you're competing with dozens and dozens of other tools. And even if you get some teachers to absolutely love it, there's a, there's a context in which that, you know, that tool can actually be implemented. That's a whole other conversation. So this has been fascinating. We are a little bit over time and I want to respect your time, but Let's wrap up. We've covered so many different great topics today. Let's wrap up by asking about, you know, what do you see as an exciting trend in the ed tech landscape right now? And and I'm going <laughs> to, 
first of all, I'm going to take AI off the table. I've been doing this in the last few interviews just because everybody wants to say AI. I certainly do. But what you, you see the landscape from such a interesting perspective. You see so many different things going on. What do you think is coming right now? Because you've taken away the obvious one that I might share, although I could have thrown in effective use of data, but that's not a particularly exciting topic. <laughs> I think the one that I would share, and I've started to see some great examples, is on XR, extended reality. Now, I don't mean that in the sense of let's all get our headsets on and head off in a virtual space and, and the broader kind of metaverse opportunities, although I think Web3 kind of unlocks some fantastic opportunities. But what we're seeing is, again, this bit about shifting the way we learn. You know. Our youngsters are very happy with a smartphone looking at short reels and clips, whether they're on Instagram or TikTok or whatever. But we're starting to see that actually learning through bite-sized consumable chunks of information in a visual and impactful way can also be really effective, both as children and as adult learners. And so what we're starting to see is this move to the way that we consume information and we learn into much more chunked-based approaches that are effectively sequenced. And I think that Delivery mechanism also is much more impactful with some of our disengaged learners. It's something that's familiar. It's learning without realizing you're learning. It's something that is something you can follow as a skill set onwards. So I'm expecting over the next few years to see a lot more content being presented for learning in a format that we're not traditionally used to being proper learning. That's a really interesting one. You know, we've covered on the podcast how how YouTube and Facebook and TikTok or, you know, Meta and TikTok have all and Amazon actually have all been sort of dipping their toes into these waters of, you know, TikTok just this week created its own STEM content channel. And, you know, and there's a bunch of ed tech startups that are saying we're the TikTok for education or I think that this movement is really, really exciting. And I love the way you frame it as you know, the learners love naturally at this moment in time, go to these short video clips as a go-to to learn anything. To go, They're going to YouTube, they're going to TikTok to learn, they're going to TikTok to just communicate. The idea of sort of really considering how learning can be optimized with that user behavior at the core of it, which we know is just core to everyone really resonates with me sorry i'm i'm, I'm uh, i feel like i'm ranting a little bit so but great i, I appreciate you uh, being able to go beyond ai i want to say ai every week too right now but i really like that trend the other question is what is a resource that you would recommend for somebody who wants to learn more about the topics we discussed today and of course we will put the links to both of your books in the show notes you can feel free to talk about what they are too but i'd love to hear something that really goes deep that you didn't write as well Okay. Well, I'm not going to spend time particularly on my, my secret ed tech diary is very much, if you're into ed tech, I've written something in a way that I hope is accessible to whether you're an, an, an ed tech pro or it scares the trousers off you and you want to just start at the beginning and understand stepping stones of the opportunities and choices. But you can have a look at the notes to find out more. I was thinking of a book to share and there are so many great books. And this is a book actually that isn't specifically aimed at education, but I think in the spirit of what we've been talking about today is a really good one. The book's called The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. And it's really talking about technology, about digital disruption, about how businesses can fail by not looking at technology as those levers for growth development viability 
Now, whilst that's looked in the bigger picture, the same applies to our school systems as they grow. It's not seeing that as an afterthought, but actually it's the underpinnings, the foundations that allows us to be innovative, creative, communicative, supportive, and all those things that we hold dear within education. It's a great book. It's not something I've just discovered from the bottom shelf. It's a well-known book, but um, I would really encourage you to have a look at The Innovator's Dilemma, Clayton Christensen. And I think it has a new relevance at this moment as well. I love that suggestion because we are in a moment where suddenly very small groups of people can have incredibly outsized effects on, you know, can create incredibly complex and really well well-structured products. And I think a whole new level of disruption may be on the horizon where, you know, the companies we think of as disruptive of education already may be disrupted themselves by, you know, two or three people in a, a metaphorical, you know, garage or dorm room or... It will happen. It will definitely happen. I've got to revisit. I I love The Innovator's Dilemma. There's also a companion piece specifically about disruption in in education, class disrupted. So yeah, we we will put links to all of those, but I I love that idea. And as mentioned, we will put links to to Al's book, Secret EdTech Diary. And do you want to speak about your other book as well? I just thought I'd show you Disrupting Class, that companion piece that you referenced. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, you know, you've heard lots of me talking. I love to share the things that majority of things I've learned from others. I call myself an edu sponge. So please do check out my books. Hopefully they're of interest. Yeah, I mean, we're very lucky that education is the one sector where most of all people are willing to share. In the corporate world, we tend to keep things as our as our competitive advantage and our secrets. And I love and it is so refreshing that educators will share their successes and failures in equal measure. So I try to mirror that in what I do as well. I couldn't agree more. You know, doing this podcast has been such an incredible personal education in how generous and how collaborative the people in the ed tech space are. I've brought people on the podcast who would be considered competitors in different world, and they are, couldn't be more collegial, couldn't be more supportive of each other's work. It's really great field to be in, which is why so many young people are looking to get into it. It's a really nice group of people. <laughs> and Al, you are one of the uh, pillars of the EdTech community. You've been doing this for a while, have amazing insights. Thanks so much for being here with me on EdTech Insiders. It's been a really, really fascinating conversation. It's been my pleasure. I'm always enjoyed talking with like-minded people. So thank you, Alex. Thanks for listening to this episode of EdTech Insiders. If you like the podcast, remember to rate it and share it with others in the EdTech community. For those who want even more EdTech Insider, subscribe to the free EdTech Insiders newsletter on Substack. This season of EdTech Insiders is brought to you by Tuck Advisors. Tuck Advisors is a trusted name in education M&A, founded by serial entrepreneurs with over 25 years of experience starting, investing in, and selling companies. Tuck Advisors believes founders deserve M&A advisors who work as hard as they do.